If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. In a moment, we're going to look at one verse today. Uh, an invitation I heard when I first heard when I was in high school, early high school. And this invitation really uh, got deeply embedded in me. It gripped my life when I was in college. It changed the direction of my life, uh, even the, what I would choose to be uh, my vocation. So super important. A lot of you have heard it today, Matthew uh, chapter 16. I'd like us to begin squarely there. Paradox, week two, we're just getting started with this series. And you see the tagline to this sermon series of the foolish wisdom of Jesus. No attempt at blasphemy or sacrilege. Thank you for not emailing me uh, your disdain of that. But it's just a, it's a, turn, a well-turned phrase, I believe, to illustrate uh, the life of Jesus, his character, his teachings, and the way that he wants to change our lives, penetrate our hearts. Matthew 16, uh, verse 24. My Bible is open. I'm going to read from it. It's yours open. Matthew 16 and verse 24. Here it goes. And here's what I want to do this morning. I'm going to read it, uh, just me alone. You follow along, and then I'm going to say the word together. And then let's read this passage out loud together. Matthew 16, 24, uh, me first. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Together. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, you know, we, we don't live in that world naturally. In fact, we live in a world, uh, it was true then, it's true today, it's just part of being human, but we live in this world that doesn't teach you to deny yourself. In fact, this world teaches us to assert yourself, to uh, accomplish things, to go after things, to achieve. In fact, we have an expression for people who do that really well, for those who are asserting and accomplishing and achieving. We say, people that do that well, we say, you've heard this right, we say they are killing it. Now, have you heard that expression? You ever use that? And I know from raising three kids, uh, the, the same season that I start using that word, that pastors, parents, and teachers use it, they'll stop using it, right? So th- this, this phrase will lose its luster after today for a lot of our young people. You ever use that? You ever heard this expression, killing it? It's really important to be killing it. I think the idea, as I've dug deeper, I think the idea, the colloquialism there, is that you would be doing well and that you would also be destroying the competition. If you are, you are killing it. It's important for people to kill it. Even church people uh, want to be killing it. So turn to the person next to you and say, thou art killing it. Few, uh, you don't have to do everything the preacher says. A, a couple of months ago, a, a young man in our church texts me the, the day before the service, the next day, and he said, hey, RG, I'm bringing a friend. I want you to kill it. And he was here. He brought the friend. I didn't hear back from him. So maybe, maybe I didn't kill it. Maybe I wounded it slightly. I'm not exactly sure. But listen, when we assert ourselves, when we're seeking to accomplish and to achieve, Here's what I'm finding as a pastor. I can look into people's faces. I know what's around us and what's in a lot of our hearts, some of that. And I can say this, I don't want you to miss it today, that killing it is killing us. Killing it is killing us. If you're, again, it's not enough to keep up with the Joneses. Remember that expression from like my great-grandparents' generation? But killing it is you see yourself in a more competitive way. Again, it's not just you doing well, it's you destroying the competition and killing it is killing us. A life of just unabated, unabandoned achievement of advancing, 
accomplishing, asserting, that killing it, it's killing us. I don't think I've ever killed anything. I don't have a lot of accomplishments in my life. I'm not asking for sympathy, but I've had a few connections along the way. I've had some fun things happen in my life. God has been good. And I remember a time in 1996, it was uh, the year before uh, the Florida Marlins would go on to win the World Series. Some of you baseball historians will recall this, but I was about to marry Susan. I was living in South Florida, and a friend, a chaplain for the South Florida professional teams, invited me one day to go with a friend of his, a guy named Randy, to go to the stadium where the Florida Marlins uh, played baseball and uh, to see the, the, the facilities and to meet some of the team and to take batting practice. It was an off day, not a game, but to take batting practice. And it was, again, I didn't know it at the time, but I'm in the batting cage and I'm looking up in the stands and I didn't know it then, but uh, the next season, uh, Susan and I's newlyweds would be at game seven of a World Series where the Florida Marlins would beat the Cleveland Indians. You historians might remember Edgar Renteria, single to home Craig Council to win that game. But here I am in a big league ballpark taking batting practice. I'm not much of an athlete, um, never really played much of little league, and here I'm in a big league taking batting practice. Randy took uh, the mound and he threw balls to me, and I would swing. And each swing early on, initially those swings, I found myself hearing the ball hit the net behind me. Another pitch, another sound of the ball hitting the net behind me. I thought, man, I, I, I'm not doing well. And so I thought, I, I got to swing earlier. You guys play baseball, you know, you have to really swing early. And so this guy, Randy, big guy, throwing the ball. And I start, by, when he unwinds and lets go of the ball, right when he releases it, I start swinging. And I felt a little bit better about myself because I started foul tipping some. And he asked me, he goes, hey, Robert, you want me to put a little zip on the ball? Now that surprised me. I thought he had thrown, thrown with all the zip that he could muster. Apparently he was just lobbing the ball and he threw one with more zip and I didn't even see it. I didn't even see it later um, in a playful way. They do this with some people, some guests who come. It's a way to make them feel special. But they, they wrote up a, a scouting report for me. And it read this, it said, Robert throws right, bats right, and took 10 minutes of batting practice. As a hitter, Robert makes a good pastor. <laughs> well, I didn't do any killing it that day, did I? I was swinging forward, I was trying to accomplish something, but I am not an athlete and can't hit a major league fastball. Even the lobs, I don't do well with. You know, there's uh, two words, I just said it, just said these two words, but they're two words that lead to listless living, that lead to a lot of personal defeat. In fact, these two words can get so inside us that not only does it lead to us failing at things, but it leads to us not even trying. Here are the two words, but I. I want to work out and get in shape, but I just am tired. I want to get in a group, a small group, and form friendships and deep connections, but I'm really busy and I'm kind of an introvert, but I, I, I want to eat cauliflower and carrots and kale and tofu, but I love butter and sugar and bacon. I want to be financially free and independent. I want to be a generous person, but I overspend at each and every turn but I. And those two words 
will lead to listlessness. It'll lead to a life that lacks vitality. It'll lead to defeat. It'll lead to such defeat that you won't even try things anymore. But I, God went to Moses. These words are all over Scripture. I'll give you a few. God went to Moses and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh, that head honcho guy, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And Moses responded and he said, but I am slow of tongue and slow of speech. God goes to Gideon and and tells him, I want you uh, to deliver the people of Israel. And Gideon says, but I am the least in my family. God goes to Jeremiah and says, I want you to be a prophet. He didn't tell him at the time that he was going to be a weeping prophet. He wouldn't see much fruit, but he went to Jeremiah and he said, I want you to prophesy to the people. Wherever you go, I want you to tell people about me. I want you to speak my name. And Jeremiah says, but I am but a child. God goes to Esther and says, I want you to go to the king and have Israel delivered. And Esther says at first, but I have not been summoned into the king's court in over 30 days. God to Abraham, I want you to go and I want you to be the father of a great nation. And Abraham responds by saying, but I am too old. God in Jesus goes to Peter and says, I want you to cast the net on the other side of the boat. And Peter said, but I am tired. I've been trying this all night for too long. But I, but I, these two words begin a lot of our excuse making, don't they? A whole lot of it. Interesting about the story that we find of these women and men in Scripture. Every time they said, but I, and gave an excuse, they were pretty much accurate in their excuse. But there's another phrase that can override this one. Hear me today. There's another two-word phrase that can override this one, and it's this, but God. But God. Genesis 50, this story of Joseph They intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. The psalmist cries out and lament, My heart, my flesh, they fail me, but God is the portion of my heart. He's my trust. He's my sanctuary, my strong tower, but but God. Jesus tells this teaching about going to God, about asking and seeking and knocking, And he says that men will tell you that this is not possible, but God says with him all things are possible. And so as we think this morning about how killing it is killing us, I want us to kind of have this as a backdrop, these two two word phrases, but I, but I, dot, 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 but I can't. And then the other two word phrase, but God dot, 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 but God can. He can. I believe the year was 2009, and uh, a smash hit was on the airways. Carrie Underwood said, Jesus, take the... He said, Jesus, she's saying, Jesus, take the wheel. You remember that. Now, why did she want Jesus to take the wheel? The story is a tough one. It's a sad one. She's in dire straits. That's when you say, Jesus, take the will. You don't often pray that prayer, do you? Unless uh, it's really bad, unless it's life or death, unless there's something uh, really, unless there's great toil and struggle. Jesus, take the will. And here's what we all know, metaphorically and quite actually, is that whoever is driving, whoever's got the will, is the person in control. 
lot of new families in our church, a lot of new parents with newborn children. Do you remember that first day when you leave the hospital? Do you remember the, the fragility and vulnerability of life? Do you remember driving 15, 20, uh, 20 miles per hour below the speed limit? Do you remember that? You strapped them in, you checked everything, you were looking de- as defensively as you've ever looked at a, at a roadway in your life. Take the wheel. You're holding on to the wheel. Now what's the next scary moment, the next vulnerable moment with that child in a car? You know this. 16 years later, when they've gone from the child seat to the passenger seat to the driver's seat, and they've taken the wheel. Maybe some of you have prayed, if you've driven with your teenager for the first time, Jesus, take the wheel. Why in the world did the government, specifically the state of Mississippi, confer upon them the legal right to own it or to operate this vehicle? Jesus, take the wheel. It could be a scary moment. Anybody live in a family where when you're driving, everyone in the car tells you how they think you should drive? Anybody that way? Don't go this way. Why did you, why did you go this way? You, you went the wrong way. You went the long way. And I have many times before uh, in my days, I've looked at people and said, look, these are my keys. This is my car. This way is my way in Jesus' name. Because I'm holding, right? I'm driving. Robert, take the wheel. I've got the wheel. You just relax in me and Jesus and I'll get you there. But to take the wheel is to say, I'm no longer in control. So Jesus, take the wheel. When have you prayed that prayer? I know you sang it a few years ago when Carrie Underwood was singing it, but when's the last time, if ever, that you've prayed that prayer in earnest? Jesus, take the wheel, because maybe we pray it sometimes, but mostly not. Because I think what we find to a Jesus who invites us, who says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, he must, he needs to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We find Uh, That Jesus at times not to be attractive, particularly in American Christianity, is that we find Jesus to be not the person we want behind the wheel in control, but we find Jesus to be a nice, handy passenger, helping us along the way because we have our destination, our route, it's our keys and our car, and we're going our way. Oh, Jesus, ride passenger, ride shotgun, and help me out along the way. You see, when Jesus takes the wheel... Uh, like you do in your car, you're in control. And Jesus is really in control. And that means that uh, he's in control of your wallet. It's not your wallet. It's not your bank account anymore. It's not yours. It's his. He's in control. That means that Jesus, if he takes the will, he's in charge of your mouth. And you're not called to gossip or to practice deceit or to condemn or judge or manipulate or intimidate or exaggerate. Because Jesus has taken the will of your life. When he is driving, you're not in charge of your ego. Your dominant question is not, how can I satisfy my own self? In fact, you're thinking of him and you're thinking of others. And you put yourself in so many ways in the back seat. That's the life of denial, of taking up your cross and following him. This invitation that he gives. You see, we can have a couple of different kinds of hearts. One is a rebellious heart. A rebellious heart just says, hey, Jesus, God, get out of the car. You're not invited in. But there can be, hear me, there can be a divided heart. I'm going to guess, I'm just going to guess that that's probably the majority. 
The majority in a room like this probably have a divided heart where you say, hey, Jesus, hop in the car, but you ride, you ride the passenger. Take up your cross. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. What do we do with this invitation? What does it really look like to say, Jesus, take the will. I want you to be, I want you to be the one that's in control. Paul would later say in Galatians, an early follower of Jesus, for it's not I who live, but Christ crucified, who lives in me the life that I'm now living by faith in Christ, the Son of God, that He's yielded Himself. There is a sense of surrender. And so last week as we looked at paradox, the foolish wisdom of Jesus, we looked at this idea that we reign by serving. And today we're looking at this idea that we conquer by yielding. By the way, that's not the introduction. I'm halfway through. But we conquer when we yield. And let's substitute that word yield as I've studied it and prepared this sermon. Uh, I'm drawn more to the word surrender. I, I hope and think that's going to connect to you better today. But a life that, that is surrendered. And what is a surrendered life look like? What does it look like to say, I don't want to control this. I want you to control this. I want to die to myself, deny myself, take up this cross and follow you. Here's what we would, what we could learn from the life of Jesus. It's counter-cultural. But it's this very idea. There is no way for a human being to come to God that does not involve surrender. There has to be a dying. There has to be a relinquishing. There has to be a giving up. A sense of surrender. And here's the thing about Surrender. Here's what it's not. Surrender is not a passive life. Surrender is not you not actively engaging your creativity, exercising authority, uh, making decisions. It's not any sort of passivity. But it's this letting go, this relinquishing, saying, I must die to who I am in order for Jesus to be resurrected in me, the crucified Christ, to rise up and to be real in my life, I need to surrender that. Surrender is a necessary thing. We're saying it again. There is no way for a human being to come to God that does not involve surrender. Look, if he's an addendum to your life, if you're tacking him in or adding him on, it won't work. That's not who he is. So you and I have to die to a lot. We'll talk toward the end in a few moments about maybe what we should die to. But there's this relinquishing, this giving up. Surrender is necessary and surrender is ongoing. The Romans, they heard this in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the early church at Rome. Culturally diverse, very fascinating, interesting place. And they heard that they should offer their bodies as a living sacrifice. You've heard that, haven't you? What does that mean exactly? To offer your body as a living sacrifice. It might mean staying away from the buffet after church. Or what does that mean? To offer your body as a living sacrifice. In the Jewish tradition, animals were killed and animals were placed on the altar as a sacrifice. Now imagine with me if that animal was alive, if they didn't kill the animal and they put them on the altar, what would that creature do if they're placed on the altar? If they're seeing the fire and feeling the fire, what does that creature do placed on the altar? A live creature does what? 
jumps, man. A, a picture a cheetah on a trampoline. That thing's jumping off the altar because it's alive. It's not going to sacrifice itself. And in a very weird, here we go again, in a very countercultural way, the early church, the early followers of Jesus were learning that we yield our lives. We surrender and relinquish our lives on the altar. And it, it's moment by moment, and it's day by day. And at times, at times, it's a death of sorts. So we have to confront the question, are you ever really surrendering something if it's not uncomfortable? Do not be conformed to this world, Romans 12, 1, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Verse 2, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Sacrifice, surrender is necessary. And surrender, it's an ongoing thing. It is continual. Question, do you have strong willpower? One admits on the front row, her name's Connie, and Connie doesn't have strong willpower. But I say this, Connie is not alone. In fact, I want to submit to you an idea based on some, some teaching, some research. Um, this idea about surrender and willpower, because we think it's exert your willpower. But I want to say to you, through recovery programs, through the teaching of the Bible, through stories I know and personal testimony, that exerting willpower will fatigue you. It can have a place, and no doubt there's variants, some of us stronger than others. Some of us would say today, I am really weak when it comes to willpower. But for all of us, part of being human, man, willpower is like the football player that you saw over the weekend. Can we just praise Jesus that football's back? I mean, it got started this weekend. Let's just have a moment to thank Jesus for that. If you want to come to the altar later and offer up thanks to him. But football is back. And I drove all the way to Columbus to watch my team lose. And I watched these athletes uh, get fatigued in the fourth quarter. I was cheering for the other team to get fatigued in the fourth quarter. By the way, if you don't know, it is wrong to pray that the other team sustains a, 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 an injury. But not for them to get a cramp or something that just takes them out of the game. That's okay, all right, to pray those type of prayers. But that's fatigue for us. Or I'm sorry, that's willpower. It's very fatiguing. There was a brilliant experiment done four or five years back at uh, Colorado University in Boulder, University of Colorado in Boulder. And in this uh, experiment, they had a central question. Here's the question. I've already tipped my hand on it, the truth on it. But the question was this. Um, when you exercise willpower, do you, does that willpower, does it get stronger or weaker or remain unchanged. So here's what they did. They took a group of people, they took a certain group, one group of people, they were asked to not eat this wonderful batch of warm, gooey chocolate chip cookies. They had to resist the cookies and they had instead to eat some radishes. Some of you young people may not even know what a radish is. We'll put a picture up at the 11 o'clock for our younger viewers. But that no cookies, eat the radish. That was one group. The other group in the experiment did not have to resist any warm, gooey chocolate chip cookies. They didn't also have to eat any radishes. Then, one group, two group, then everybody, both groups, everybody involved were asked to, they were assigned a very complex math problem. Sounds like hell, doesn't it? In fact, this math problem was so complex, trust me, I couldn't solve it. God didn't wire me that way. But 
in fact, nobody could solve it. This was a math problem so complex, it was uh, literally impossible. And then through observation, they learned that those who resisted group one, those who resisted the warm, gooey chocolate chip cookies, that they were much, much, much quicker to give up on the complex math problem. You see, willpower, your willpower, it fatigues you, doesn't it? Here's what we're all good at. You know this, we're all really good at big decisions. Joining an organization, finding a church, uh, selecting a marriage partner, those are big decisions, and they don't really fatigue us much at all. But the daily, moment-by-moment sacrifices can be really hard for us. Consider these truths that we put sort of um, in a chart. Tasks that require the will, making decisions. You know this, right? But study after study demonstrates that if there's a lot of items on a menu, it, it just wears some people out. Anybody like that? I live with a couple of them, and they're just worn out. You know, you, you find yourself kind of helping them make a decision and pushing them a little bit when the waitress or waiter comes over to the table. It's just all these options. that it just, it overwhelms them. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to pick at people, but... Um, it, it's true, there's a fatigue factor that comes with the decisions, but it requires an act of the will and, and in many ways a surrender to make decisions. So making decisions, resisting temptation, persisting in difficulty, breaking a habit, and surrender. Twelve steps, it's the greatest single path to victory the world has ever known when it comes to people being healed finding progress against something that would destroy their lives. And it's fascinating to me that in 12-step programs, what you never hear them being taught is exert your will. Never. Not once. But what these people learn is to surrender your will. To say, but I can't, but God can. Instead of the fatigue factor and exerting, there's a letting go and a relinquishing, a surrender. Amazingly, the one act of the will that produces energy rather than depletes energy is surrender. Surrender actually replenishes our vitality. I think it's why Jesus calls us to come away from the crowd. I think it's why when we look at his life, he was, as we said a few weeks ago, so relaxed. When he teaches us that love is patient and kind, he lived that kind of life. And he was relaxed in that. He was patient with it. You see, there's a power in surrender. And the power of surrender is when you let go of what you're holding on so tightly. So Jesus... And the early followers of Jesus recorded for us in the best-selling book of all time points us to areas where we need to surrender. So what I want to do, especially if you're in a group, this will give you an opportunity to talk about this in your group to the extent that you're comfortable, to the extent that you want to open up your life. But here's some areas where uh, one at a time where we can surrender. Jesus calls us to surrender our possessions. Look at me for a second. Don't get mad at me. Some of you, you get really uncomfortable when I talk about money from this stage. Uh, You're far more fearful, I think, than I am. Nervous about it. But here's the thing. Money is about trust 
and control. Trust and control. It's why I say often that those who don't give, and most people who attend church don't give, but those who don't give, who don't give systematically, who don't give um, sacrificially, um, most people who don't give, it's not as much about greed and materialism as it is about fear. God, will I have enough? God, can I trust you? We, at times, want to control. And the call to follow Jesus, again, I, I want to throw this in there. If some of you are new to church or don't know much about the Gospels, but Jesus talked about what more than anything? So y'all let me talk about it sometimes, all right? Is that okay? He talked about it more than anything, so maybe I ought to talk about it a little bit myself. But to surrender your possessions, the second thing are your private struggles. It could be a grudge. It could be that, that anger that you're not letting go of that can lead to rage. Another week, another call to the pastor, another home being broken up by dad's rage. Men, don't sit there in rows. Get in a circle. Get with others. And surrender that. Your willpower hadn't worked well. And if you don't know this, when you're trying to love a woman and you're trying to love children, that willpower, that's not how to love them. God has called me to love my wife and my kids with a gentle love, with a tenderness. And yeah, it can be exemplified in toughness at times. But what are you harboring? That anger that could lead to rage, that grudge. Let me say to you, a few years back, I, I was on a run. And on that run, I was mad at so-and-so and mad at so-and-so and mad at so-and-so. And I had like seven names, not like. I had seven actual names of people that I was disappointed in. And I'm running, and as I'm running, dragging these old bones around Fondren and Bellhaven and places, God was doing work with me and calling me to surrender my expectations in other people. Was it painful? Yes. Because I'm not much of an athlete and I was running. So yeah, it was painful physically, but it was painful spiritually and emotionally. And that pain exceeded the pain that my old body was feeling on that run. And when I got back here, I was sweating. And I'm not one of those pastors that has a, a bathroom and a shower. I don't, I, don't, I don't know why I feel the need to say that, but there's no shower here for me. But I was standing uh, in my office sweating and thinking, man, I, I've got to surrender this. There's something, there's something inside me. And yeah, I've been disappointed. Yeah, a few people did me wrong. Yeah, a few people uh, made a promise and there was a gap in my expectations and my experience. But I needed to do business with God vertically before anyone horizontally. And I need to surrender that. Your possessions, your private struggles. Another thing that we need to surrender is our people. Listen to me real quick. The people that you love, hold on to them loosely. My group is... My small group on Wednesday nights, uh, a lot of them are my age, and that means we're in the stage of releasing our kids to college. Some of you have been there. Some of you are a long way from there. I got a text from a friend in my group. He, he let one go to state and one go to Ole Miss, and he texted me after the second one. He said, this dropping kids off at college is really hard, bro. That's a manly way to say, pray for me. 
The people that you love, hold them loosely. Parents, do you remember when your kids were learning to ride a bike and you, they were training wheels and then they rode on their own, but not really on their own because you were there with them and if they fell left or right, you were going to catch them. Dads in particular, you remember this? Remember when you pushed them and you, but you followed them behind them? And then remember when they didn't need you in that moment and you were on one hand so proud because they're riding a bike without you? Yay! But then they're driving, riding away from you? And that's an omen. That's a precursor to life itself. And in that moment, when you teach that kid to ride a bike, guess what? They've learned. And if they've learned, you've got to let go. Enjoy the relationships in your life, but don't let them be idols. We've got to surrender our possessions, our private struggles, our people, and our positions. I won't say much about that. We've hit on this the last few weeks. But look, that job title, that corner office, the thing that gives you strokes, look, Jesus emptied himself. The one who was God. The one who created the world emptied himself. Again, if you're in a group, our group discussion guide is being put up right now. Philippians 2 is one of those passages. Lauren read from it last week from the stage. Jesus emptied himself and took on the form of a slave. Don't hold on to your position as an idol. And then lastly, your plans. Look what James 4 says, verse 13 to 16, it says the following, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes instead. Or I'm sorry, it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. I watched a, a quarterback play who was cocky. And he was talking to fans, his fans, the opposing team's fans. He was talking to the other players. And I remember my um, sinful heart thought, I hope he falls, man. I hope this guy loses. And I found myself kind of cheering against him, right? Because he was boasting in the win. He was boasting in what was about to happen. And what we see on TV that reeks of arrogance can be true in our lives when we say this and that here is what we're going to do. And so here's what I want to close with. Back to the list, if we can put that up again. What do you need to surrender most right now? If you're in a group, will you ask people to pray for you? Figure out a way maybe that people can care for you and keep you accountable. What is it that you need to surrender? In closing, I want to say to you that we think a lot of times that if we make the effort and exert our willpower, that we can control things. And what I find when I'm sitting down with people, men in particular, is youthful idealism, early optimism has faded, and life has punched us in the gut, hit us hard below the belt. And it's an opportunity and too many seem to get bitter about life. But it's an opportunity just to joyfully say, God, I want to let go because I don't control outcomes. Do you realize how few outcomes you control? Do you realize how unsurrendered your life is if you think you're controlling outcomes? You see, there's this power of surrender, but there's this peace of surrender as well. And let me say this because somebody needs to hear it. They're probably at the 11 o'clock, so let me practice. But if you think you're controlling outcomes, let me tell you the outcome. 
the people around you feel controlled. Y'all learn that? It's not just your life. Look, it's not just your life. There are so many people depending on me. And it's a weight that I feel. But how I live, is my character being formed? Am I surrendering what I need to surrender to Jesus? Possessions, private struggles, position people, what plans? Am I surrendering what I need to surrender? Because when I think I'm controlling outcomes, here's the outcome. The people that I love feel controlled. You're not living at peace unless you're living a surrendered life. And let me tell you, we see it in God Himself. I think the greatest, most beautiful prayer of surrender ever prayed was Jesus in the garden when He said, Father, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And in closing, before we sing and take communion, just as surrender led to resurrection for Jesus, so it will for His followers. I can't help but think that there has to be some sort of death in your life, that something needs to die. Maybe it's one of these five Ps that we put up today, but maybe, maybe it's something else. To surrender. Say, God, I'm open-handed. My willpower is fatiguing me. I'll let go. I give it to you. Would you pray with me? In a moment, you'll be invited, everybody will be invited to follow the person in front of you, to come to the elements that represent what Jesus said. The one who said, let this cup pass from me is the one who gave himself for us. The one who says, if you're going to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That's exactly what he did and is exactly the pathway to peace and power. And so we'll take a piece of bread that represents the body of Christ and dip it into the cup that represents the blood of Jesus shed for you. A simple act of worship necessitating a move, steps forward. And as you worship and as we sing, as you take the bread and you take the cup, I ask you today, what needs to be surrendered? And would you, as an act of worship, thank God for a life spilled out, a life emptied out for us? And think, as a corollary, think, what have you closed off? What are you not willing to give up? What are you not willing to speak out? What are you holding back? Today you've been invited, in fact, you've been challenged to surrender. Father, receive our worship now as we sing.
Lord, as we take steps toward the, to the bread and to the juice, thank you that we join a global, worldwide, historic movement thanking you that we can't, but I can't, but God, you can and you have, and it is done. Thank you in Jesus.